Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's already Friday, so I better get this out of the way. You know, the week is late. We're looking at Parshat Peshalach over here, which is a very fascinating Parsha. Maybe they all are, but particularly so, at least in my opinion. And especially at the beginning, where it says, Vahib Peshalach Parasa'om, I don't think it's so well understood. Vahib is a uh, usual language of negative, Vahib, like woe, and, and uh, woe is me. And it should be the opposite to Jewish people getting out of Egypt. The trouble is we don't think beyond the superficial. When the Jews left Egypt, they were majorly depressed. I'll say it again. When the Jews left Egypt, they're majorly depressed. Why were they depressed? Well, you know, 80% died in the plague of darkness. So it's like the concentration came in 1945. Like, for example, my father. Yeah, he survived the war, but his whole family was killed. So you think when the liberation came, everybody was in a good mood? On the opposite, everybody was depressed. How come all the others got killed? And I'm the one who wants to survive. You have survivor syndrome and all that. And it's fascinating. This isn't my vort, believe it or not. But it's a medrash, medrash Abba. I remember it from the past. It says, mm-hmm. The plain translation of the word, mm-hmm. is God did not lead them. From the word, so you could, Of course you can translate it like that. But you know, the medrash is always fascinating when you have an unusual Hebrew word. Mm-hmm. can also mean that he didn't give any nechama, that Hashem cannot afford the Jews any nechama, any comfort over the destruction of all their loved ones that had just taken place in Egypt. Think of all the people that perished in the darkness and the babies that died in the bricks and all the others that died along the way. See, so yeah, 20% survived and 20% got out, but they were mourning and feeling bad about the others. To use the words of the Medrash, this time I have it in front of me, it's like a king who had uh, children who were captured by by pirates or something like that. And those children, the, the princes, were enslaved and some died. Eventually the king was able to do like a rescue mission, like an Entebbe situation, and rescue the survivors. But only some had already died. That is to say, some of the king's children had already died. Yeah, he was happy about the ones that survived, but he was always sad about the ones that did not survive and kicked himself. And so when the Jews left Egypt, they're like all glum and mum and totally understandable. It goes deeper than that. Uh, We have a fascinating rule that many are familiar with but probably don't understand so well. It's called Mismach Geula Svila, which means we have uh, davening with Shachris and and Marav also. So uh, it's very important that there should be an immediacy and no interruption between the time you say Goal Yisrael and the time you start Shemona Esri and you say We all know that. That's why in some places they don't say actually the words Goal Yisrael. You've been in shows like that so that you don't interrupt with Amen and all that business. But uh, And even at Marav, you know the history of it, long, long ago, the first part of Meir ended with Gal Yisrael and the Yisrael Shemonesri. 
And then for whatever reason, the Gemara said they stuck in Hashkivenu. And then for whatever reason, the Gemara said later on they put in the other thing, Baruch Hashem Lilam Amen. And so that, ironically, that became like the interruption. But technically speaking, it's supposed to be Mismach Geulah feel. He's supposed to right away go straight from Gaal Yisrael into the Shemonastery. And why? Why? Why are we uh, you know, obsessed with this? What is the Gaal Yisrael? What's the first part? You evoke the memory of the Kriyas Yamsuf. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Think for the morning. You say Hashem Elkechem Emes and Viyatsev and all that business. And then you do all of a sudden Ezra Savasino Tomi Olam right before Shemun Esri. And what do you say in that paragraph? You literally evoke today's Parsha, Parsha Peshalach, every day you evoke this picture of the Jews crossing the desert. Don't you say, you know, uh, whatever the language is, you took the beloved ones out, and the Egyptians, you drowned, and it leads up to the crescendo, that Moshe and the Jewish people were so inspired that they said Shira and they said, which of course is a quote from the Oz Yashir, meaning that's what the Jewish people said when they crossed the Red Sea. And then, and then they said, and then you, sp- so think about it. You, the one who's davening, you're, when you say this, if you pay attention to what you're saying, every morning you think, you're compelled by the liturgy to remember the a drama of the Kriyas Yamsuf, crossing the Red Sea, and you're supposed to think about it, and when you think about it, hopefully it'll get you in the right kind of mood, and only when you're in that mood can you go right away and talk to God, because the Shemun is when you talk to God. See, Borcha to Hashem, and so on and so forth. Right? So, why is it that they said, don't talk to God, don't say Shemun Esri, until first you evoke the picture in your mind of the crossing of the Red Sea? And at night time also you say the same thing. Vamuna calls this Vakai Malenu, you know, Hamaver Bonam and Gizriamsub is her famous Shibhu Hadulishmo. These are all statements about the Kriyas Yamsu. So on both occasions, every day the Jew is told that before you talk to God, which is before you say Shimon Esrei, as opposed to praising God, you know, when you talk to God, that's the Shimon Esrei. Uh, with your prayers and your requests and all the rest of it, before you do that, evoke the picture of the Kriyas Yamsu of Parsha Bashalah. Why is it that? And why is Jewish religion so big and hyper on this? And it says, again, the matter is Shrab, it says something very interesting. Why do you have to say the Kriyas Yamsub all the time before you do the Shemun Esrei? Lefi, because Shekivan Shekar Lehemesiyam Haminubo. Because only when they split the Red Sea and the Egyptians perished, then they really believed in God. Now, wait a minute, what does that mean? The Jewish people didn't really believe in God beforehand. What about the miracles? And what about the ten plagues and all the other business? If you want to get technical on me, it actually says when Moshe shows up, you know, they believed in him when he showed him the signs with the stick and the leprosy and all the rest of it. But there, to be perfectly honest, it's not exactly so. It's The story is that they asked the old lady, what's her name, Serech Basasher, if you look at the Ramban, you'll see it. Uh, you know, is this the uh, deliverer? And she said, well, if he says pakod pakadati, then those are the magic words. That it means that he's the, the one that was sent. And so on her say-so, they believed that Moshe was uh, God's messenger. But as you know from the story of Moshe, as soon as he showed up to Pharaoh before the first plague, and as a result, Pharaoh doubled the bricks and cut the straw, they started screaming at him. So that wasn't a real belief. 
Here it says, We say it every day in Davening, as you know. So the question is, why was it only at the Red Sea that they came to really believe in God? Uh, how come the plagues aren't good enough? You know, How come the other miracles aren't good enough? Uh, it would be, we'd think it would work for us. And it's very remarkable. You can't believe in a just God unless you see with your own eyes that the wicked get uh, punished. And we don't see that too often. After all, Moshe obeyed himself when he went up to Harsinai, complained to God, I don't understand. Why do I look at the world and see the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? It doesn't sit well with me. This is the great complaint or tying against monotheism. You understand? If you believe in polytheism, there's a bunch of gods out there, so then you can say the reason that there's bad things happening is because different. no one's in charge. There are different forces. If somebody gets hit with some kind of terrible sickness, it was just at the wrong place at the wrong time when one of the forces in the heavens or whatever threw a lightning bolt and hit the guy with a bad illness. You know, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It becomes a question of mathematical contingency. But if you say there's one guy in charge, so to speak, there's one God, then you say, if this is the world you created, why did you create it so bad? Why, why, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? It should be the other way around. And I know we give answers and we say, well, you have to understand this and that. And that but the question is better than the answer. There's no good answer for that question. And so what it means is that even though the believer will say, well, I take it on faith and, you know, I'll take a leap of faith uh, and think there's a just God and a righteous God. So even though I look around the world today and it looks like so many bad things are happening, um, but I'll take it on faith. But belief means you really are 100% convicted of it. You, you're absolutely certain. The Jews had suffered terribly from the Egyptians. And Hazal say that the Egyptians who chased them into the Red Sea were the ones who had enslaved them. You know, the people who had done all the bad stuff. In other words, the Adolf Eichmann types, you know, the Dr. Mengele types, the actual bad ones. And the Jews saw that they crossed the sea and the Egyptians came in and those Egyptians got drowned. And so they saw all the wicked people suffer because it says in Oz Yosha, you know, they got crushed by lead, like lead, and they smashed like straw. You know, those they had a horrible death. And the person who has suffered from someone else has to see that the person who did the bad to him is being fully requited and is suffering for all the pain that you did to me. This, my friends, happens very rarely, if at all, in history. Think, for example, what happened to all the big Nazis that all the, did the Holocaust? The answer is nothing. Yeah, a few here, a few there. They caught a few, a tiny group. The vast, vast majority, 95% or more, got away scot-free. And uh, they probably lived a long and happy life in Germany or somewhere like that, or Argentina, and nothing happened to them. And it bothers you. You know, here's a guy that killed millions of Jews in Auschwitz and Belzec and all these other places and did terrible things. And garnish, nothing happened to them. You know, you know? Now again, if you say, I take it on faith, and they'll burn in hell and all that, fine. But it doesn't sit well with you. On the other hand, if a person had been uh, persecuted, tortured by a Nazi, and then that person himself was able to return that torture or kill that Nazi or something, do with, see it with his own eyes, even though you say revenge is no good, but that's a lie. Revenge is actually good on certain occasions. But anyway, uh, I mean, according to the Torah, when you see, you see justice, he did this and he got punished that way. You understand? He perpetrated that act and he got what's coming to him. Only at Kriyas Yamsuf did the Jewish people actually see the proper punishment 
administered to the very people who had tortured them and persecuted them. When these slaves saw that, then they said, oh, there is a God. You see? Then I believe it. Then it's not just a matter of taking on faith. I believe it. So, as it says again in the Medrash, for when he split the sea and everything that went along with it, then they said, this is it. There really is a God out there. And they had a, a moment of religious absolute conviction. You and I, the Chazal ordained, uh, when they made up the tefillos, you know what, try our best to, or we're supposed to anyway, evoke that memory and think what it was like when they hit the real full of Muna. And once you hit the real full of Muna, to the degree that you're able to recapture that scene, relive it, reenact it, then you can talk to God. <laughs> then Shimon Ezra isn't something that's just rote, that you're re- reading because it's in the sitter. You're fulfilling it because it's an obligation to pray three times a day. That's a different thing. That's good too. You know, you punch the clock. But if you want to do it in a real sense, and you say, oh, and all the rest of it, and you want to see that somebody's really there, then the greatest aid that they said you can bring into it is the aid of re, uh, evoking the image of the Kriyas Yamsu. So you see, it's a big deal in Judaism, and it, it's, it sounds like that was in the Chama. Meaning, when when they left, they were in a bad mood. They could find no Nechama. When they saw the proper punishment being administered to the per- perpetrator, then they had the Nechama. Because then you, at least you feel that there's a justice. This, I think, is a powerful lesson from Parshat B'Shalach. There's a lot more to say in the Parshat, but I think I spoke enough already, so have a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.